From the studios of Teeing It Up in the swamps of Jersey, this is a very special edition of Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling Presents. I am Jeremy Schilling, a contributor uh, to various publications under the Golf Trade Magazine brand of PGA Magazine. And I am joined by my father, Jonathan Schilling, uh, who has been on this show many times and all the associated podcasts many times, this time for a very different purpose. Welcome back to Teeing It Up, Dad. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, We're not driving to the Meadowlands right now, which is where my previous appearances have usually been. And, and you're on the show in 09. And I was on the show and, in And studio, yes. Yes, there's no relationship advice segment coming today, trust me. He's here because he helped get over the finish line a new book, Super Bomb, Organizational Conflict and the Development of the Hydrogen Bomb by Ken Young and Warner R. Schilling from Columbia University Press. Warner R. Schilling is my grandfather and his father. Um, look, Dad, we both know this. It's about elevator pitches. If, if, if you tune these people, if, if people don't like what they hear, they tune out immediately. If, if you can take them in and pull them in, they stay. So what is your elevator pitch? How do you make a horrible decision? <laughs> okay. That is one way of looking at this. Um, so before we dive into the book. And how do people fight the horrible decision if they don't like the way it turned out? Okay. Uh, that is universal among society, not, right. not just involving uh, weapons of war. So before we dive into the book, there is the genesis of the book, which is an interesting path. So just take us in the path that it took us to get to, 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 <laughs> to February 15th when this book came out. All right. Seventy years ago, the United States government, military, and scientific communities faced a sudden problem and difficult decision. Um, the Soviet Union exploded its first atomic bomb, ending the American monopoly on atomic weapons. And the United States had to decide whether to move forward with the development of the hydrogen bomb, which was going to be a thousand times worse than the atomic bomb. And this decision uh, took place over a short period of about five months and really broke all of these communities in half with bitter disagreements about whether the U.S. should move forward or not. Um, and once the decision was made in January 1950, for the next several years afterwards, um, it was still controversial. It was still hidden from view, much of the decision process. Beginning in the middle 1950s, and from 1956 to 1958, my father interviewed 66 top government military scientific officials who were involved in this decision, from President Harry Truman, Secretary of State Dean Acheson, and um, famous scientists like Robert Oppenheimer, Edward Teller, and so forth, several Nobel Prize winners, several famous generals, et cetera, et cetera. He interviewed pretty much everyone involved in the decision. He was going to write the first real history of how this decision was made based on these interviews. Uh, he was going to have a story that no one else had. That was his goal. Um, unfortunately, this book that he was going to write never happened. Uh, and a bit later, I can describe some of the reasons why. 
he wrote a very short journal article that said that the book was coming, but it never came. Uh, fast forward many, many decades later, and an English professor named Ken Young was writing a, a journal article on one of the figures in the decision, sort of the villain of the decision, a guy called Louis Strauss. Um, and he wanted to know if my father had ever interviewed him. He wrote an email to my father, who by then was in poor health, got a sort of indifferent response, but my father told me about this communication and it piqued my interest. I had heard about this book all my life, knew my father was greatly frustrated in the fact that it never came out. Um, and so I um, dug out the interviews in question, you know, suggested that my father reply to the professor in England about this. Um, by that point, his health was too bad and you know, it was just getting worse, and so he never did anything. But after he passed away, in 2013, I contacted this professor who was very interested in the materials. A few months later, he came to New Jersey. My brother and I met him. And before long, we had uh, set up an arrangement by which he would write a book based on these interviews, plus a bunch of ideas that he had, research that he was going to do. Um, I then got my, some of my father's lecture notes and other notes that were never incorporated into the book included into what this English professor, Ken Young, was developing. Um, <clears throat> that took several years for that to come out. Very unfortunately, Ken Young himself got sick. Uh, he had cancer, and he died about a year ago. And so when Jeremy said at the beginning of the show that I helped this book across the, get across the finish line, that's what he's referring to. Um, Beginning about a year ago, I worked intensively on uh, getting the final manuscript that Ken Young had submitted into fully publishable shape with copy editing, footnotes, proof, proof markups, and all of that. And so now here the book has come out. Uh, the two authors, in fact, you know, Ken and Young and Warner Schilling never met. Uh, only had one brief email exchange for that matter. But separated by decade, decades apart, these two different uh, levels of effort, these two different pieces of, you know, um, programs of research, this book has finally come out. And it tells a story of a, of a momentous decision and some of the ramifications that came from that decision. Um, we're talking with Jonathan Schilling on Teeing It Up uh, with Jeremy Schilling Presents about Superbomb organizational conflict and the development of the hydrogen bomb. On page two of the introduction, there is a quote here from Barton Bernstein. Trump's decision on January 31 was virtually... That would be Truman. What did I say? <laughs> you said the occupant of the, the current occupant of the White House. <laughs> An understandable uh, mistake, uh, error of speech, but... Thank you for correcting me and taking away a moment of true idiocy on this, uh, on, on, on this podcast program. And by the way, we are recording this in March 2020, for those who may listen to this way out of date. Uh, Barton Bernstein uh, wrote about Harry Truman. Truman's decision on January 31 was virtually inevitable. He felt no reason to resist the commitment and many reasons, both domestic and international, to make it. 
He was not compelled to do so by powerful domestic and bureaucratic forces, but he would have found those forces hard to resist if he had wished to. He did not. Um, I, I think it's important to start, kind of start here and then expand out. One of the things that I took away from looking through this book was that there was all kinds of people mad at each other, upset at each other, a conflict, um, backstabbing, saying, I'm great, you're horrible, um, especially when my grandfather sat down with all these people. Why do you think Truman said yes to making a bomb? Um, he was basically predisposed towards doing it, and nothing that all this discussion period among all these other people set forth to do convinced him otherwise. The problem here is that the Americans feared that the Soviet Union, which was a bad actor in the world during this entire existence, was going to develop it. And if they developed it, would the U.S. be at a horrible disadvantage by not having it? That was fundamentally the argument in favor of doing it. Um, and eventually that convinced Dean Acheson, the Secretary of State, and it convinced Truman as well. Um, there are a bunch of arguments against doing it, saying that it wasn't really needed for U.S. security, saying it was immoral, and so forth. But none of those arguments were able to coalesce to a wide enough um, foothold within the U.S. government, military, or scientific establishment that it could force enough pressure on Truman not to do it. Um, looking back, and what I find astounding um, about this book is in Blank's interview with Schilling, in Blank's interview with Schilling, Schilling recounted in his interview with Blank, my grandfather was 31 years old. He's doing this as a 31 to 32 year old, speaking to 66 people intricately involved in the development of the H-bomb. How the heck did he get all these people to say yes? I, I can't get golf teachers to say yes to, to, to uh, help me with my articles. How did he get all these people top down from Truman all the way down to say yes? Well, that's a good question. Part of it is that um, he had good institutional backing. He was a very young professor, sort of just the beginning of his career as a professor. But he was at the Institute for War and Peace Studies at Columbia University, which had been founded by Bill Fox, William T.R. Fox, a very famous uh, international relations scholar. It was Fox who created the term superpower, indeed. Um, and Fox had created it under a mandate from Dwight Eisenhower, who had been president of Columbia University. Little, few people actually remember this. In between the time he was a World War II general in command of the Normandy D-Day invasion, and after that, and before he became president of the United States, he was president of Columbia University. And he had created this institution and hired this very highly respected person to administer it. So Bill Fox would write a letter to each of these people of introduction saying, you know, this guy Warner Schilling is, is doing research on this. We'd be very happy, you know, we'd be very pleased if you would talk with him. So part of it was that, but part of it is just the nature of, of my father and, and your grandfather. He had tremendous self-confidence um, and he had 
just an assurance in his own intellectual abilities that he could hold his own with these people. In the, in, the, in the interview notes that he wrote, which are great reading in and of themselves, some of them are quoted in the introduction to the book, he talks a lot about the personality and character of the different people he's interviewing. And in all of his interview notes, the only time he says he ever got nervous, got stage fright, was the first time he talked to Atchison. Uh, but by the second time he talked to Atchison, he was okay. And that was because he greatly respected Atchison as, a, as an architect of post-war American foreign policy. Um, so, so he had this tremendous confidence in, in, in sense of his abilities to talk with these people. Um, on, on the other hand, the flip side of this is that he was a perfectionist. Um, and if you look at these interview notes, they're filled with, filled with self-criticism. He was his own worst critic about everything. He's always saying in these notes, well, I didn't get enough sleep last night, so I think my questions were disorganized, or I had a stomach virus that morning, or a stomach bug that morning, and I think maybe I was, uh, you know, I didn't get my thoughts together well, or I ran through the questions in random order when they should have been chronologically sequential, or for a different subject, I should have bounced around the questions, I got stuck at the questions, and he's always criticizing how he did the interviews. Um, to be honest, looking through them, I never found that any of them were worse than the others. It seemed to me he was always pretty much on his game. Um, one of the people he talked to, in fact, said he must have trained as a lawyer because his cross-examination skills were so good. Uh, another of the interview subjects, David Lilienthal, who was chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, said he was a very persistent young man. He just didn't give up. He was always asking for another, you know, a second or a third interview with these people to clarify any points that hadn't been established yet and so forth. So he was persistent, but he was perfectionist. And in the end, it was the perfectionism that got him. It was in the end, it was that that prevented him from writing a lot of things. It got worse as his career went on. Uh, because nothing he wrote ever lived up to his own high, possibly high standards that he set for himself. So if there's a lesson in all of this, it's that um, it's, it's okay to be aggressive, assertive. It's okay to hold up a high standard, but don't go overboard on it. Um, don't, you know, the, the, the work that never gets published, the project that never gets finished, the you know, the, uh, the artwork that never gets shown to anybody doesn't do any good. Um, at the end of the day, you have to do the best you can, but then you have to say, you know, I, I've done, I've done as, as, as well as I can for now. The world will be a better place if this comes out than if it doesn't, and then just finish the project. Uh, and this applies to software, books, you know, any realm of life. Let, let's be clear, there are, there are bigger takeaways involving nuclear warfare than, than, than that. But, in, but in, in terms of what to learn for why this is coming out 65 years after the interviews were done, that is definitely the lesson to take from it. Yes. And, and just to finish the point about my grandfather and Secretary Atchison, I was with Atchison from 11.45 to 12.30 p.m. I was also charmed off the seat of my pants. This time, unlike his first interview with the former Secretary of State, I didn't suffer from stage fright. After the interview was over, he said he would walk out with me, and we walked across town to his, uh, uh, to his club where he was meeting someone for lunch. 
Needless to say, I found this a pleasant experience. Right. Um, those are the words of my grandfather in the new book, Super Bomb, Organizational Conflict, and the Development of the Hydrogen Bomb by Ken Young and Warner R. Schilling, Columbia University Press, available on Amazon.com. This is uh, Cornell University Press. Did, did I say Columbia? Car- yes. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm going to do this a thousand times while promoting this book because Columbia is so ingrained in. in there, in, there are in three my institutions career. associated with this. Uh, Columbia University is where my father taught. King's College London is where Ken Young uh, taught, and where I gave a presentation or part of a presentation on the on the on this as part of a book launch event uh, last week. And Cornell University Press, it's a series on security studies, is who, who has published it. Available on Amazon, um, Kindle, m- yes, Barnes & Noble, wherever you e-books get. E-books or physical books. Yes, there are many ways to uh, <laughs> ob- obtain this. Wherever good books are sold or distributed, as they say. Not, I'm not sure it's in those places, but it is on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Uh, we're th- I am Jeremy Schilling. You're listening to Teeing It Up uh, with Jeremy Schilling Presents. I'm, I'm Jeremy Schilling. This is not the normal c- c- content of this podcast, but that's okay. This it's is okay, especially because the sports world is shutting down due well, to the coronavirus. Yes, if, if you're listening to this right now, there is the coronavirus. If you're listening to this three years from now, because, <sighs> Hopefully not, yeah. because some professor in, at some college had you listen to this for a class, you may be thinking... Wow, coronavirus, that was so three years ago. Um, yes. Well, but, I mean, it's, it's an important point because, you know, this is a topic that's actually worse than the coronavirus, so it helps to put things in perspective. Well, that's what we're going to get to here in a couple minutes. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm Jeremy Schilling. He's Jonathan Schilling, the son of Warner and, and, and the guy who helped take this over the finish line. Um, you are a very well-versed man in terms of international affairs, domestic affairs, you are news literate, political literate. You're very up to date. I am a politics junkie. What surprised me most about this is in the conclusions, I could have erased everything about the H-bomb, put in some different names, and all the partisan bickering back and forth. And this organization in fighting with the other organization feels like 2020 in our current political climate. As somebody who is so literate about the news and, 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 and literate about history. What surprised you as you helped get this book over the finish line? Well, yeah, you do get a sense that, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, there was a huge you know, amount of, of arguing about leaks back then. You know, sometimes people think that press leaks and media leaks are from the government or a more recent thing. You know, the current administration complained about it constantly. Every administration, it's one degree or another, has complained about it. But back in 1950 and 1949, people were leaking like crazy. People had favorite reporters on the New York Times or other places. Uh, one whole book, which was filled with inaccuracies about the bomb, was uh, was written by two reporters who had fairly good reputations at the time, but they were heavily skewed towards one particular point of view, and people were leaking to them. So that that shows that uh, that you know what what we may think of as current problems have been around a long time, or current behaviors have been around a long time. 
the, the, the fighting between organizations, between the State Department and the Pentagon and the White House and, and so forth, different commissions and government bodies, you know, that's, that kind of bureaucratic conflict is always going to happen. It's pretty much part and parcel with the nature of bureaucracy. So that's a good reminder that that's, that's always going to be around. Um, the, you know, the, especially if, if, you know, from the current, current day perspective, you know, we, you know, many people, myself included, think that the, the current White House administration is a fiasco with, with incompetence at the top, you know, bluster and incompetence at the top and various levels of either unqualified or frustrated, you know, people holding cabinet positions below. Um, but even back here in 1949, 1950s, when you know, good people were in government, competent people, people with good reputations by the large, large part, as Jeremy is saying, the book points out that these people were frequently at great odds with each other. They, their tempers overflowed, they, they attributed terrible motives to the other and so forth. So it get, does give you perspective that when faced with a very difficult decision, um, that any, any, any kind of government, any kind of administration, any kind of, of national establishment set of people is going to have difficulty in coming to a consensus about it. It's just the human nature is always going to rear its head for good or for worse. We're talking with Jonathan Schilling, uh, son of Warner Schilling, who is the co-author of a new book, Superbomb, Organizational Conflict and Development of the Hydrogen Bomb, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, GolfDigest.com, just kidding, um, and other places where books are sold. All right. There is no teeing it up without some fun, and there is actually some fun associated with your part in this book, because you went all over the place to help get this over the finish line. So give the folks some insight into the places you went, the people you contacted, the, 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 the steps you had to take, the, the levels of of I want to get this right, you went through to get this right. Because I, I, I think stepping back from, from the content of the book for a second, there's a really fascinating story here in tenacity, perseverance, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to find these sources and get this stuff right, and you went to some really interesting lengths to do so. Right. Well, um, you know, as I said before, Ken Young... Uh, the, the King's College London scholar uh, submitted a final manuscript. The content of it, while his health was failing, the content of it was fine, but some of the details in it regarding footnoting, footnote formatting, exact page numbers that things occur on footnotes, exact wording of quotations, etc., was shaky. And so it fell to me, and with some help from my from my brother, your uncle, we set about trying to track all these down to make sure they're right, because this is scholarly publishing, and if you say this particular fact was sourced on page 63 of this book, but in fact it's on page 67, that's not what you want, because someone's going to look at the wrong page and decide that your, your sourcing is, is missing and it's not good. Um, in addition, as a lesson to anybody preparing manuscripts, 
Ken was using voice recognition software to, to do this. And in case in, you know, voice recognition software is not perfect, in my particular personal case, it never understands me. But <laughs> sometimes it would rearrange words just slightly or use a slightly different word. You know, even if it's a, a the instead of an a or an of instead of an in or whatever. Um, in normal text, you know, it would get corrected in normal proofreading. But in quotations, um, you have to know that the thing exactly matches the original source because quotations have to be exactly right. So I ended up contacting over a dozen different archives of various kinds around the United States, and in some cases overseas, um, going to libraries to track this stuff down. I went to the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia twice, um, looking over some of their papers of uh, one of the particular AEC commissioners. Um, you know, I engaged one of the uh, research helpers that Ken had used to go back and, and retrace these steps and so forth to make sure everything was right. So it was a lot of effort. It's the kind of thing that doesn't easily show up when you're looking at a book unless you've engaged in this kind of work yourself and know the, the level of attention to detail that is necessary. But um, I'm pretty well satisfied that the book came out in, in very good shape. And again, um, you know, the, the main credit for this goes to Ken Young, um, who put together this work. Um, I was just helping at the very end of the process. I'm Jeremy Schilling. This is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling Presents. Uh, we're talking with Jonathan Schilling, my dad, the co-author of Superbomb, Organizational Conflict. My grandfather is the co-author. <laughs> Ah. You see, we have. I was just saying, we have to have a level of attention to detail. <laughs> see? <laughs> see? Oh, I told you, folks, this is not what I normally do. Uh, he is the son. You, you've uh, corrected me on golf matters many times. That is true. We are now even. Uh, Super Bomb, Organizational Conflict, and the Development of the Hydrogen Bomb by Ken Young and Warner R. Schilling. Even when I don't want to be corrected, like the new terms for match play, which I completely deplore. <laughs> oh, Jonathan Schilling is the son of the author. All right, before we get to takeaway messages, uh, which is gonna close this podcast, is there anything else that you wanna point out that I have not brought up yet? Well, I did. Is this where you want to talk about comparisons with the coronavirus? I, uh, the, the, you're, you're the guest. You can okay. take this in whatever directions you want. I just want to emphasize that you know this is this is a good topic for today because it's actually a subject worse than what the world is going through. Um, you know, the, the coronavirus is as bad as it is. It's not going to be as bad as the 1918 to 19. Spanish flu pandemic, which you've probably heard about. A lot of people have written about that in newspaper articles and so forth. Um, it's not as bad as any of the epidemics. That it, um, I'm saying it, you know, now I messed up, okay. The, uh, the coronavirus is not as bad as the, you know, the 1918-1919 Spanish flu epidemic. The hydrogen bomb would have been much worse than that. The hydrogen bomb was the developed, you know, 
beginning 70 years ago, is still to this day the most destructive weapon that humanity has ever created. Nothing that's come since has been worse. For the first time, it really presented the danger that the, if used all out in a full-scale war between the Western allies and the Soviet bloc, it could essentially reduce human civilization down to virtually nothing. That's a huge, huge, huge burden to have to think that you're going to play a part in this. The atomic bomb that was used twice at the end of World War II against Japan, as bad as it was, did not have the potential to destroy human civilization. The hydrogen bomb, between its blast effects, its firestorm effects, its long-term radiation effects, really did start to have that potential. About the only disease that you can maybe compare it to is the Black Death of the 1300s, which substantially really reduced Europe's population by horrible, horrible percentages. Um, so, just to, you know, the reason why this was such a momentous decision is just because it had such a momentous, momentous potential outcome. And the fact that the hydrogen bomb has never been used is a good thing but, uh, to, this, to this point. But there's no assurance that that'll hold true forevermore. So it's still something to think about, and it's still something to read about and learn about as people are making horrible decisions like this. Um, to close this out, one of the things I found fascinating is that the Columbia Institute War and Peace Studies um, in, in Institute of War and Peace Studies, founded by Dwight D. Eisenhower, um, uh, written in the preface here, Eisenhower confessed to finding it, quote, quote, almost incomprehensible that no American university has undertaken the continuous study of the causes, conduct, and consequences of war. How do you think this book fits into that? If, if, it, within that prism, what's the takeaway message from Superbomb? This was going to actually be one of the subjects of the uh, book, the book discussion event that was going to be at Columbia University's uh, Institute of War and Peace Studies this past week, just a few days ago, which unfortunately got postponed, canceled due to the uh, coronavirus. But hey, you thought about it. You've, but you've, I did think about yeah, it. Yeah, you yes. thought about this answer. So this is going to be great, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, actually, I was going to leave it to the, the direct, current director of the institute and some of the other professors to discuss it. They would be in a better position than me. Um, but yes, it's, you know, studying, studying war. And, and at King's College London, where I get, did give the, the, the presentation on the third of this month, they have a Department of War Studies, which is also kind of unique in the same, along the same lines. It can be a different. It can be a difficult, you know, subject to engage on because you, you feel like it's you know you're pushing the rock up the hill. Eventually, it's going to roll back down on you. Eventually, people are going to start fighting again. Um, I think, to some degree, academic study of war has helped make it a little less, a little less frequent. People do sort of understand more about how to avoid escalating conflicts into worse and worse positions and say they did at the outbreak of World War I, you know, over 100 years ago. Um, but it's still an open question. I mean, the, the story is not yet told, obviously, of, 
where humans go, where international relations go, where weapon design goes, uh, all of these questions. And so by reading about the past, we can be better informed about the future and have a better idea of where we're going. The book is Super Bomb, Organizational Conflict and the Development of the Hydrogen Bomb. Ken Young and Warner R. Schilling are the co-authors. My guest on Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling Presents has been my father, Jonathan Schilling, who helped get this over the finish line. It's from Cornell University <laughs> Press, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, other similar places, notgolfdigest.com. Um, Dad, this has been a unique appearance on a Teeing Up franchise, but thank you for coming on the show. Very happy to be here. Thank you all for listening. Subscribe, rate, review, preferably five stars. You get no prize if you do, but that's okay. Um, and uh, pick up this book. It's been a labor of... of um, and an intense labor of passion for those behind it. I can say that as, as the grandson here. Um, and I recommend it. And uh, thank you all for listening. And uh, please reach out to me at J-S-C-H-I-L on Twitter if somebody from a university forwarded this podcast to you and that's how you came across it. We are very curious to see where this book is reaching. So thank you all. Thank you, Dad. And we will see you up the road on Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling Presents.